Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Howard Rossback. We're at Erratic Oaks Vineyard in Dallas in the Mount Pisgah AVA, Mount Pisgah of Polk County AVA. It's June 29th, 2023. Howard, thank you so much for joining us today. And the first question to get you started is why wine? Well, since I've got some collegians behind me, they will understand this. Um, Let's go back. Uh, I'm no longer young. Uh, I grew up in New York. Uh, a little place upstate New York called the Bronx. Uh, that's an inside joke. It's the only part of New York City that's part of the mainland. Uh, my dad was a criminal court judge and lawyer back in New York. And when it came time for college, I knew that I wanted to study botany. And one of the great botany programs in the US was the University of Washington. Uh, the University of Washington was also About 3,000 miles west of my father's jurisdiction, this is the early 1970s, and uh, it seemed to be a wise choice both on his part and mine. (laughs) And uh, I wanted to study plants and mushrooms. Um, We won't get into the shroom part, really. Um, We could. So I came out in 73 to go to UW, and unfortunately in 1975, my father died. And before he died, my original plan was to be an environmental lawyer. I wanted to save this planet. And before he died, he said, if you love the law, do it. But if you find something else that you totally love, follow your passions, do that, and you will be happy all your life. And uh, after he died, I found myself getting a little drawn in and reclusive. And I thought, you know, I better get a job. One, I don't have dad supporting me. Two, uh, if I could pick a good job, maybe some good things would come from it. So I thought it'd be really cool if I could get a job in a wine shop. I'd have access to alcohol at the employee discount. If I learned about wine, maybe I'd be more suave and debonair and my social prospects couldn't improve. You know, when you're at that age, hormones drive a lot of decisions. Those were good decisions, it turns out. I interviewed and on my 21st birthday, I started working in a wine shop in Seattle. And now, nearly 48 years later, I'm still in the business. I'm a lifer. Um, There are a lot of uh, lifers who sort of grew up in the business as second generation, uh, but very few like me that uh, started in retail and then worked their way through the industry. And uh, it's been an incredible journey. And you know what? Dad was right. I found something that I truly loved and, uh, and was passionate about. So I worked two years in retail as I was finishing up my undergrad at UW. 
and it was time to start thinking, okay, do I do grad school? Do I go on to something else? And I remembered what dad said. And I thought, you know, I'm going to give this wine industry a whirl. Uh, this was back in 1977 then. So I started in 75. And there weren't many wineries in Washington and Oregon. So I interviewed around the Seattle area and got a job with a small wine wholesale company. I was employee number 10. It was G. Raden and Sons. And I initially sold on-premise, selling to restaurants, hotels, and fine wine shops. And my territory was from downtown Seattle to the Canadian border, from the crest of the Cascades to the Pacific Ocean. Uh, it was a lot of good windshield time. Um, and for two years, I sold on-premise. Next, I managed the on-premise division and took that group from three employees to 10 over the next two years. The ensuing two years after that, uh, I did all the fine wine buying, brands management, and education. So I was going to wineries here in Oregon, Washington, California, to Europe, buying the wines. Um, the big national import companies would not pay attention to us. So I'd just go knock on doors. Uh, and we put together an incredible portfolio of fine wine. We can diverge onto that, but we probably don't need to for this. But that would be a whole other <laughs> series of conversations. And then lastly, my last two years, I was in charge of the grocery chain division. And most of the volume of wine in Oregon and Washington is sold in the grocery chains. And I was responsible for oh, probably 80, 85% of the grocery store schematics and resets. And this was before there were computers. So you'd go into the store, you'd measure out the sections uh, with a tape measure, you'd draw a picture of it, you'd then submit it what you were proposing to the buyer. They'd either sign off on it or not, or change something, and then you'd run it. And uh, that would be, the resets were done early in the mornings, usually starting like three or four in the morning, because you wanted to be finished before the customers roll into the store. And uh, uh, we did not have St. Michel. We didn't have Gallo. We didn't have the two major wine entities. And uh, we would subtly sort of move those brands to where they were. Uh, you, you couldn't totally squash them, but they were in slightly less desirable situations. And there was on an occasion that uh, a local rep uh, would want to take me out into the parking lot and rearrange my mental processes, um, which I politely declined. Uh, I wanted to keep this glorious face. Um, but when I was in the brand's management part, uh, there were about 10 wineries in Washington and 10 wineries in Oregon. And because we didn't have St. Michelle, I put together 
the collection of most of the others and especially those that were doing really good. So uh, Raiden represented from Oregon, Irie, Knuts and Erath back then, Ponzi, Soka Blosser, Amity, um, Chuck Corey. Um, we were Elk Cove, uh, Doyle Hinman. You know, it, it was a who's who, and there are probably a few others that I'm forgetting. Uh, oh, down in Umpqua, Scott Henry, we had uh, also. Oh God, I'm thinking the label Hillcrest. Hillcrest. Yep. And uh, we had all of those, along with a bunch of good Washington wineries. Uh, back then, Preston was big, Hogue Cellars, um, St. Chapelle out of Idaho was big back then. And so we were able to cobble together a group of Northwest wineries that then could rival St. Michelle in the eyes of our, of the key buyers, be they restaurant buyers or uh, the chain store buyers. And so all, most of the second generation folks here in Oregon, I knew them as babies. Uh, some I may have babysat, but we won't go in and get into that. Um, and it's been great to see how this industry has evolved. There are now well over a thousand wineries in Washington, well over a thousand wineries here in Oregon. Uh, the industry has blossomed. Um, so those call it the early days. And I'm doing this as overview and then you can wade in with questions. Uh, in 1985, I went to my boss, Gary Radin and said, I'm leaving. Uh, I felt that the wineries from Oregon and Washington were getting good enough to go out on the national market. St. Michelle was out there uh, and Steve Carey was doing some work, but no one was really going out and telling a Northwest story. So I got together with two friends uh, Lila Galt and Steve Schaefer, and we formed Vintage Northwest. Uh, it was a sales and marketing company, much like uh, San Francisco Wine Exchange was down in California, and uh, uh, Vintage Wine Merchants in California, but telling a Northwest story. And uh, initially we had Hogue, we had Covey Run, out of Washington. Uh, I had this upstart winery, a guy who had just moved here from California, uh, called, and he called his winery Panther Creek back then, but that was Ken Wright. And I took him nationally. And Steve Carey's an old friend of mine, and I told Steve that I would not go after any of his wineries. I felt there needed to be honor among us thieves. And 
I didn't. Mm -hmm. uh, I did tell him that if any of his wineries came to me, uh, I would not refuse the phone call. And one day, Dickie Rath called, and I'd known Dick for a long time. And unfortunately, Dick's business was foundering. Um, he had gone very heavily into the uh, inexpensive blend business, Pacific Mist and Coastal Mist. And he was not, he was making some great Pinot Noirs and other things, but the volume that he was doing was the inexpensive. And that was getting him really close to uh, bankruptcy. He was a few weeks away. And uh, I looked at what his business was, and fortunately I was doing a fair amount of business with his largest distributor, uh, and that was Ed Miletus. And I called up Ed and I said, Ed, uh, we need to save this. And I worked out a, uh, a program where Ed could buy a bunch of wine, which would give Dick an instantaneous influx of cash. There were depletion uh, allowances to help sell through, but the next buy-in would be at a higher price. Mm -hmm. And uh, it worked. Uh, Ed Columbia went through the wine really fast. They needed to rebuy at the higher price. They were making really nice margins, so there was an incentive for him. Mm -hmm. And then Dick was able to have a predictable cash flow uh, that's really important because, you know, we look at this business, it is a business. Um, one thing that I think I've done all along is that I've stressed that it is a business. I'm a wine food geek, uh, but uh, numbers are huge. And uh, sometimes people lose sight of that or they look at the business and they say, oh, wow, this is bucolic and lovely and uh, wouldn't it be great? Uh, or they make a gazillion dollars in some other industry and here, why don't I get into the wine business because I've always loved wine. Mm -hmm. No, it's a business. Uh, it takes investment. Uh, it takes cash flow. Uh, and it takes monitoring all that. So, uh, we were able to save Dick and then get his product stream more oriented to Pinot Noir. Because even back then, in the mid-late 80s, the Oregon story was, and it still is, Pinot Noir. It's over 50% of the planted acreage in the state still. Um, and that singular focus actually has been Oregon's secret weapon because you can then go around the country and internationally. People know Oregon Pinot Noir, and it is what tr has brought tremendous investment from outside, from Europe. It's because of Pinot Noir. Yes, we grow wonderful Chardonnay now, 
Riesling, Gewürztraminer, Pinot Gris, here in the Willamette Valley, down in Southern Oregon, uh, and Eastern Oregon, the Bordeaux and Rhone varieties are super, but Pinot Noir is the bell cow. And so uh, we got Dick turned around. We got him on solid financial footing. Uh, and uh, uh, along the way also, I was getting Ken Wright and Panther Creek established. I was getting the Washington wineries established. And Vintage Northwest's wine business grew from nothing in 1985 when I started it. When I sold out of Vintage Northwest in 1994, uh, we were doing half a million cases. Uh, we had distribution in all 50 states. Um, we had the relationships with the distributors and we were helping the wineries achieve what they wanted to achieve. And we got Dick into a position where he then sold right after that to St. Michelle. Um, I'm really proud of him. In 1991-92, I identified a niche that none of my wineries was filling. And it was for an Oregon Pinot Noir that had lovely bright berry fruit, not too much tannin, easy to drink, and back then could retail for $10. Simple formula, except you got to do the math on it. And I figured out how much it would cost to produce. So I identified this niche, and it was a niche you could drive a Mack truck through. I figured out how much it would cost to produce a case of wine, what you could sell it for, how many cases you could sell. And I presented that to my clients. I felt I had a responsibility back to them, call it a fiduciary responsibility. Uh, and the projections I had were pretty aggressive for volume, and the Oregon winery said, uh, we don't want to get that big. Mm -hmm. And the Washington winery said, uh, we don't want to get involved in Oregon. So I said, I hope you don't mind, I'm going to do it. And that's when I started Firesteed. And our first vintage was 1992. And very kindly, Dick Erath made my first wine. So I owe him a lot. And God, Dick, thank you. Uh, he passed away earlier this year and special man. Oh. It was a success from the start. Uh, we named it Firesteed. I did not want to name it Rossback. As much as I love my name, I didn't think it would be the greatest on a wine label. But Firesteed is a playoff Rossback. Rossback is German. It means horse or steed brook. Rossbach. And so he came up with Firesteed. That's a cool name. Came up with a cool label. And it was very different from anything else that was done in Oregon. And when we rolled it out, our distributors were 
absolutely panting for this wine. And we sold out the first 7,500 cases in three or four months. It just blew. Um, we did have one issue. We, it rolled out so successfully, uh, there was a product quality issue that Dick stood behind. We had to recall it all. Oh my God. And I did see my life pass before my eyes and Dick sort of did too. Uh, but we got it resolved and uh, uh, the wine re-rolled out and we sold that out in three, four months. Uh, Firesteed was something that, and here is the one big mistake I made in business. I never trademarked this term, virtual winery. I'm the guy that first came up with it. Actually, I'm not the guy. My wife came up with it. Give her credit where credit's due. This was back in 92. Things were just becoming virtual and all that. And uh, we didn't own a vineyard, didn't own a winery. What we did have was a really cool label. I had long-term contracts that I started setting up for the grapes. So the grapes were grown to my specification and I set up the contracts so that they all didn't expire at the same time. Uh, the model was uh, a uh, laddered bond fund uh, so that you're not having maturation all at one time so that uh, if prices go up, you're not getting crushed by that. If they go down, you take advantage and you uh, can manage your costs because the whole thing was cost management. And uh, we picked sites that we thought were on the warm side that could deliver good quality consistently. And we also did it throughout Oregon. Uh, we had Willamette Valley sites, we had Umpqua and Rogue uh, sites. And the reason for that was to uh, sort of cover my rear end because if it was cold and wet up here in the Willamette Valley, maybe it'd be warm down in the Rogue. Mm -hmm. And we weren't trying to make the top, top dollar Pinot. We were making a $10 Pinot that eventually, by the time I sold Firesteed, was a $20 Pinot. It may be back down to 10 in some markets now, but that's out of my control. The sun has come out, so I am uh, wearing a hat to shade myself and also keep my dermatologist happy. And I made the first two vintages at Dick Erath's place. After that, it was outgrowing what he wanted to do and I needed to be a little more independent. So I worked out a production deal with the Flynn brothers, Wayne and Mickey. And Wayne was the guy on site. Mickey was the money man based in San Diego. And uh, they had the Flynn winery on 99W and Rick Real. Uh, they had space, and so we worked out a deal where they would produce the wine for me, and initially that worked out wonderfully. Well, a couple of years later, they didn't have the tank space. So 
they identified that problem and uh, I said, tell you what, I will buy the tanks. They're movable. If the uh, deal goes sideways, um, I can always move the tanks. They're movable. Uh, so uh, I bought the bulk of the tanks at the Flynn Winery. And these were all new tanks, greatly expanded their production capability. And that worked out well for the next few years so that I could focus on the business side, the marketing and sales. In uh, 94, I sold Vintage Northwest, so I was out of it just doing Firesteed. I also was importing a little bit of mineral water from Sweden, Ramlosa. We mentioned it, but that went away eventually too. Um, and periodically, the Flynn brothers would approach me and saying, you know, we're not getting along all that well as brothers. Uh, we'd like to get out of what we're doing. Uh, would you like to buy the winery? And I said, not really. Um, I sort of like being footloose and fancy free. And it's working well for me this way. Well, finally, they came to me with an offer that I couldn't refuse. I was able to buy the wineries, the winery and take over farming the vineyards uh, at below replacement cost. And any time you can buy good, usable assets at or below replacement cost, it's really worthy of looking into. Uh, I bought Flynn and took over. What year? That was uh, around 2000, 2001. And uh, uh, I think it was 2001, same year I bought the house in Seattle. Uh, I've been living in Seattle the whole time, so contrary to rumors, uh, I have not lived in Oregon. Uh, I am the inside outsider, or the outside insider, uh, and Firesteed flourished. It grew. Uh, we had distribution in all 50 states. I was ex exporting to 17 countries. Um, it uh, grew to over 100,000 cases, and I sold it six years ago to a large California company. Uh, their money was most excellent, um, and the terms were good. I was able to hold on to my top-end citation label, and I was able to hold on to Erratic Oaks Vineyard. This is a 202-acre property here in the Willamette Valley. And basically, uh, I sold a wonderful asset in Firesteed, and I sold the winery. The winery went to uh, Banffy. Uh, Vintage Wine Estates bought Firesteed, so it was a complicated deal. Um, but I was I, I, six years ago, I hit the same age as my dad had been when he died. And you take a look at your life. And I'm reasonably healthy, pretty happy. I have two 20-something kids. 
I don't think they really want to be in the branded side of the business, uh, though they might be interested in owning a vineyard. Um, and uh, uh, I decided to test the market. I was visited by some of the major players internationally in the drinks business, and I picked the deal that I liked best. And it allowed, I wasn't ready to fully retire, and I also knew that I could better monetize my assets if I did things call it piecemeal. And so uh, uh, I picked the deal that suited me best. Uh, when the deal was close to closing, Vintage Wine Estates and Banffy said, well, we want you to sign a non-compete. And I said, wait a minute, let me get this right. I still have a label. I still have a vineyard. I think I'm still in the wine business. Let's forget about the non-compete. Well, there was this tiny little bit of non-compete that we signed that then expired. Um, and uh, that night on selling Firesteed in the winery, I went to bed smiling and giggling and for the first time in four decades, debt-free. Now when I want to talk to my banker, I go look in the mirror, I smile, my banker's smiling back at me. It's a hell of a good feeling. Yet, I held on to Citation, I held on to Erratic Oaks, and I came up with a new label called Centerstone. And Centerstone is sourced entirely from here on Erratic Oaks. We do unoaked Chardonnay, which I'm looking at here. We do Pinot Noir. And, you know, you can think of it as the best of Firesteed, but on steroids. Uh, single vineyard, and now single AVA, sub-AVA. Uh, we will eventually be putting all that on the label uh, for an unoaked Dijon clone Chardonnay and Pinot Noir that's primarily made in stainless steel that just has gorgeous fruit. And they both retail in the 2025 range for the center stones. The citations are more expensive. They're barrel aged, uh, higher selection of fruit, lower crop yield. Uh, much of it's sourced here on Erratic Oaks, but also I like to play around in other places. Um, so now my job description is reduced to four things. Travel the world, eat, drink, and fly fish. I used to play a lot of golf, but I don't much anymore. Uh, fly fishing, absolutely. So that's sort of the 4,000, 40,000 foot view. Uh, okay, I got lots of questions, don't okay, worry. Okay, good. Um, we're gonna go kind of chronologically, so I wanna go back. Uh, you mentioned, from the very start, you mentioned that uh, wine, you, you, you thought of originally of wine as something that would be nice to have a discount on and, and maybe make you more popular socially. Tell me about initial, as you initially got into wine, what, what intrigued you about it once you started selling it? Well, actually, my interest was before I was selling it. Uh, we'd always have wine at dinner. And uh, uh, us kids, we'd get a cordial glass if we wanted. 
and sometimes the wine was really, really good. Uh, Dad had a great palate for wine, uh, had a good cellar. Uh, his brother also was in, very much into wine. Uh, my best friend who lived across the street from me, his father was into wine, and now my best friend lives about uh, five miles from me in Seattle. Uh, lifelong friendship. Uh, he's about one year to the day older than I am. Uh, it's special to have these long-term relationships. And so I was exposed to good wine at an early age. I'd go, I was sent off to boarding schools um, starting in middle school. Um, and so sometimes uh, there might be some surreptitious consumption, especially in high school. Um, and then in college, uh, I never got into the berry wines and the cheap wines. Um, getting the job in the wine shop was a great excuse to learn about wine. When I started in the business, uh, my second day there, they told me, in a little over a week, you're going to be teaching an introduction to wine course. You need to put together a uh, eight-week program and to teach people about wine. This was the blind leading the blind. So I was a student. I had to quickly research, okay, what am I going to teach? Well, I'm going to teach grape varieties the key grape varieties and key regions. Mm -hmm. And I w put together a syllabus working on grape styles, varieties, uh, and syllabus. But before we even got into the grape varieties, I had them learn the components of grapes. So I had them tasting, what is tannin? What are the acids, citric, malic, tartaric, the core acids of wine. And I've always been a bit of a nerd. So it was a nerdly start on that. And uh, I had a blast teaching. Now, teaching a class, you get to pick the wines that are tasted. So I pick wines that I wanted to taste. And we'd go through them. And then I was part of tasting groups and I would voraciously taste everything I could get my hands on. And being in retail, sometimes you get samples from suppliers, otherwise I'd be buying uh, at employee discount uh, from my employer. And uh, I was fortunate also, at the same time, I was getting into food in a big way. My mother had been a really good cook, and as a teenager, uh, I had summer jobs and my folks were away at our, we had a summer place in upstate New York, and I'd be in New York. My summer job was gardening. And uh, I'd walk up to the local supermarket, buy food, and then figure out how to cook something. And uh, I watched a lot of Julia Child. Um, heck, even, we're gonna, I'm gonna deviate for a second. Bring me back to this in a second. Okay. But as a little kid, I'd wake up well before anybody else in the house, in the Bronx, sort of four or five-year-old, 
and I'd go downstairs and turn on the TV, black and white TV. We didn't have color back then. And this was sort of five, six in the morning. Everybody else was asleep upstairs. The only two shows on were a religious show, that didn't really interest me, and a show called The Modern Farmer. I don't know if it's on anymore. Uh, I don't get up early and turn on the TV. Uh, I get up early and turn on the laptop. Um, but I was learning about irrigation techniques on a large scale. Uh, pivot irrigation, you know, this is the early 60s, late 50s. Pivot irrigation was brand new. So I was learning about that. I was learning about just piping from an irrigation trench to the rows. I was learning about silage and various ways of feeding cattle, absorbing it. Little did I know, later on, we'd be farming. Uh, here we don't irrigate. Uh, we have a uh, very natural overhead drip irrigation system. Uh, we call it RAIN. Uh, it works really well. Um, so I did these introduction to wine classes and it was a way for me to learn about wine because inevitably somebody would ask a question in a class and I'd say, you know, we're covering that next week. I'd write it down. I'd research what the answer was and then lead off with it to start out the next week. Um, at the end of the classes, I would finally confess that I hadn't known and I had to research it. And they said, well, you handled that pretty good because all my students were professionals. They were, you know, there I was a 21 year old teaching 30 somethings and 40 somethings. Uh, they said, no, you handled it like you knew it. You know, sometimes in life you have to. Uh, so that's what got me in. Uh, my roommates in college, we moved off campus and about the time that I was starting to work in the wine shop and my roommates were all swimmers. Uh, in fact, several of them were Olympians, uh, medalists in Munich. Uh, I think we had two bronze, two silvers and a gold in the house. And uh, I had a deal with them. I always hated cleaning up. Still, I'm guilty. My sainted wife uh, does that. I love to cook. And I would take their scholarship money, pool it together, and my job was to create training table type meals that were really good, uh, and then still have a little cash left over at the end of the month. And uh, I really learned how to braise, how to take the cheapest, toughest cuts of meat, because these guys were hardcore carnivores. There needed to be loads of good carbs, uh, but I'd learn how to make interesting food. I would take bones and carcasses and I'd make stocks. 
from stocks, I'd make demi-gloss. I'd freeze leftover. Uh, ice cube trays became my friend uh, because you can freeze demi-gloss in ice cube tray. And then back when, uh, after college, I'm still living as a bachelor, I'm still doing that sort of stuff. Uh, Date would come over and, oh, let me cook something. Uh, <laughs> oh, let me deglaze the pan with a little demi-gloss. Life was good. Oh, would you like some wine? Uh, who was it? Ogden Nash had said candy is dandy, but liquor is quicker. Um, I've been into food and wine uh, pretty much all my adult life and into food and a little bit of wine since I was a kid. So tell me about selling wine then. Obviously you're, you're interested in wine and, and you're, as you're going through these progressions, you're obviously, you're, you're, you're successful. You're successful in distribution, you're set, retail distribution, managing. What sells wine? What, did you, what were you learning and what were your sort of your, your successes? Well, we need to pay attention to evolution because the world of wine selling today in 2023 is very, very different from the world of selling wine in 1975. Uh, in 75, there were some, a few big distributors, but there were a lot of small, energetic, interesting distributors that were scrappy and passionate. You don't see a lot of those now. We've had numerous waves of, of consolidation. Uh, and in the past, with each wave, you'd see new scrappy, passionate companies spring up. You're not seeing that now. Uh, I wish it would happen because selling wine is so different now. You could get a distributor. They would work, this is in 1975, they'd work on your behalf. Uh, they'd get distribution. Um, now, it's totally different. A small winery can't get the attention of a distributor. Hence, they either do most of their sales direct to consumer out their cellar door, or they do online sales, or they do like I do. I sell over 75% of my bottled wine, which is a small part of what I do, uh, I, I sell that internationally. Uh, this is a big vineyard. This vineyard could supply well, between 40 and 50,000 12 bottle cases of wine. Um, I'm not interested in building that type of sales organization again. I, I've been there, done that. Uh, so I sell most of the grapes to other wineries. Uh, and try and work out deals that are win-win for them. Though some wineries have said, oh, Howard, you know you're not supposed to make money selling grapes. We're supposed to make money selling the wine. Uh, no, no, I've done both sides of this. Uh, you can do both. Um, but now it's a much more challenging, difficult marketplace. But at the same time, it's a broader marketplace. So it's figuring out where your niche is. Where do you want to be successful? Um, you know, you only have so much uh, financial and energy assets to deploy in the marketing and sales of whatever product you have, 
whether it's wine or widgets, uh, where and how do you want to deploy it? What do you enjoy doing? What are your passions? Uh, and for me, I do love to travel. I like to eat and drink. Uh, plus, what I've found is internationally, you have a lot of those small, energetic companies that want to be involved, where Oregon is something new. Uh, in today's U.S. distribution world, uh, you've got four or five mega distributors. And unless you have volume, you're not going to get their attention. Even if you have great ratings, you're not going to get their attention because those distributors are pretty much ruled by their mega wine and spirits suppliers. So it's figuring out what is going to make most sense for one as uh, a wine business person. What wines were you finding yourself uh, excited about and what wines were you finding the market excited about as you were getting started, say, in the, in the mid, mid to late 1970s and into the 80s? What was exciting? Well, European wines were always there. Uh, the classics, the Bordeaux, the Burgundies, and frankly, they were not too expensive. Um, great Italian wines were there and not too expensive. We were the, are the Washington importer of Gaia. And I was buying early 70s Gaia's Barbarescos for like 10 bucks. Now multiply that 10, 20, and then you're talking what Gaia is now. Uh, we were buying uh, great growths of Bordeaux uh, for 15, 20, um, or less. Um, and we were dealing directly with several chateaus. I'd gone to their doors, knocked on their doors, uh, said, we will buy, this was in my Raiden days, we will buy directly from you if you let us. We want your best price. We will buy every year, good year and difficult year. Um, and we will buy in multiple formats. We'll buy in 375 milliliter if you have them, 750 of course, and Magnums maybe. And uh, we were dealing directly with Chateau Reusec in Sauterne, which is now owned by Eric Rothschild. It's right across the ditch from Ikem. Uh, we were buying uh, uh, Chateau Nayrac and Barsac uh, from uh, Tom Heater and Nicole Tari. Uh, we were buying uh, petite chateaux like Le Tour de Bee from Marc uh, Pages, um, from Brage. Uh, we were buying uh, a bit of Fijac Direct and Ducru. Uh, because in my lousy French, knock on the door and explain. And I said, yeah, sounds good. We also dealt with the Lorton family uh, and they owned a, several chateaus in uh, Entre-de-Mer and we were able to provide the bulk, the freight train for Bordeaux containers from Entre-de-Mer, white and red. Uh, and those wines were wholesaling for like 250 3 bucks, And they're really good wines. And 
some of them, I still have a few bottles left. They've stood the test of time. It's, and they were good back then. Um, in Burgundy, we were dealing with Becky Wasserman uh, and a few other people. And uh, we were dealing with uh, Jean Baudet. And so there'd be a lot of Beaujolais. Uh, we were dealing with the Talmards for Macon. Those would be volume over in uh, Burgundy. And then we'd sprinkle in various growths from, uh, from Becky. It worked out really well. And uh, I love those wines. And as the quality here in Oregon and in Washington started to rise, because the original pioneers give them such great credit, they had the right idea, but they had to figure out how to do it, uh, how to grow the grapes. Uh, figuring out the right trellising. We're all vertical shoot positioning here, but they tried a whole bunch of other things. Some worked, some didn't. Uh, they tried uh, different uh, clones. Initially, Chardonnay here in Oregon was a Wente, the 108, which in a really hot year was lovely wine, but most of the time it was so acidic it would take the enamel off your teeth. Uh, Along come the Dijon clones. You know, thank uh, Dave Adelsheim, uh, who was an early, that was his first distributor. I met him when he was a waiter in a restaurant. Um, and they brought in the right material and we figured out how to grow it. Uh, I think in some ways we've gone overboard uh, in uh, some vineyards, you'll see them planted very, very high density. Uh, I think that that is an appropriate way to plant if the soil is rocky and probably depleted, not very thick. Most of the Willamette Valley, because we have our three major series of soils, marine sedimentary, volcanic, and Missoula Flood, which we have all three here at Erratic Oaks, uh, very little of the volcanic. And when you have a lot of volcanic, it's often very shallow soil. That's where it's more appropriate to be high density. Rest of the time, what you want to do is what my friends in New Zealand say. And I took my winemaker back when I owned Firesteed and uh, vineyard manager down there. It was before Lisa was my vineyard manager. Uh, and they said, you don't want to be high density. What you want to do is fill the fruiting wire. You want the vine to be able to grow enough to support the fruit that it's growing. If you're super high density, you're really just throwing money on the ground because the vines are fighting with each other. You have multiplied your costs of tending your vineyard by that multiple of your high density, let's say you're doubling your dense, density, you've done two things. You've doubled your capital cost initially of plants, pole rods and everything else and growing. But then during the growing season, 
ensuing every growing season, you've doubled the amount of work that you're doing shoot positioning, pulling leaves, hedging. Uh, you may have a tighter canopy, but that may not be the healthiest that you want to do. Um, we don't irrigate here. Don't need to. As I mentioned, we have overhead drip irrigation called rain. And uh, when I bought this piece of property, uh, it was a grass seed farm. Uh, the Willamette Valley is the world's grass seed capital. Many great golf courses around the globe originate here in the valley. And before this was a grass seed farm, it was a cherry orchard. And my family became the third family entity to own this property since the original presidential land grant in the 1850s. Uh, you came in on Burcell Road. I bought the property from Phil and Iris Burcell. Uh, and they had bought it from the original settler family. Uh, and way, way back, this had been a cherry orchard. Um, fertile soils, fairly deep. We want the vines growing deep, looking for the subsurface sources of moisture and being in touch with the subsurface rocks. You'll get far more interesting wine as a result. You also get vines that are drought tolerant. So I'm not particularly worried about global warming uh, and drought. Vines are healthy. Uh, a year ago in 2022, when we had that freak uh, freeze, mm -hmm. the vines were out about this far and they got killed down to the cane. And because the vines were so healthy, our secondary tertiary shoots produced a crop that was slightly larger than normal. And thank you, nature, mother nature, uh, because September and October were absolutely glorious because we needed all that beautiful weather because uh, it was a rather late year. Uh, last year, we had an early bud break. Uh, it, we had bud break in March. And typically, here you expect bud break right around tax day, April 15th. Uh, that's pretty much what we got this year, maybe a touch later. But then we got a burst of heat, and we were all caught up. And we had normal flowering this year. Uh, we're all done with it. And we're in the last week of June. We were done with it 10 days ago. And it's a healthy vineyard. Uh, we work closely with the folks at uh, OSU. Uh, I think Patty Skinkis likes to use us as a teaching lab. And we are delighted that she does. Uh, I've always believed that the professionals around me are, are really the people looking over our shoulders and making us that much better. I love the input. Um, uh, we're open to all that. And uh, uh, Lisa is the one who does the farming. I claim, you know, it's not me, it's her. Uh, I give her full credit. Uh, I may own it, but 
uh, I try and give her the vision, give her the tools that she needs, uh, and then get the hell out of her way. And at some point, we should also talk about innovations here, because uh, uh, Lisa has been an incredible innovator, and uh, uh, I think we're we have done and will continue to do some of the first things in viticultural innovation done here in the Willamette Valley. We'll definitely come back to that. Um, I want to talk about your sort of me, as the as the industry was growing, and you were starting towards vintage Northwest, tell me about meeting the people who were making the wine here, and and starting to to get a grasp for them. Who who was it, who was interesting to meet, and and what did you think of sort of the the, the industry at that point, the people and the wines? Okay, uh, before we get to that, uh, I should mention because you asked the previous question, which wines? Mm -hmm. It was also a lot of California wines, mm -hmm. and back in the early seventies. California was making magnificent balanced wines. Uh, they were modest in alcohol, 125 to 14%. They weren't the fruit bombs that you see now. Uh, and, uh, you know, if I'm going to throw a stone, I'm going to throw a stone at Bob Parker. I think he's done more damage to the overall wine industry of the world. Uh, and I've tasted with him uh, back in Bordeaux. And he'd go through things quickly. He, it was not blind. Uh, and he'd rate them. He'd just assign a number. Uh, it was not a buildup of the number. He'd just assign it. And the wines that caught his attention were the biggest, uh, the highest alcohol. And uh, those are wines that stand out initially, but they will not stand the test of time. And... Uh, I'm going to tell another story of back when I was in retail. Uh, people would come into the wine shop and they'd say, my great uncle died or my grandfather died. They had a farm in eastern Washington or eastern Oregon and they left me, they had this wine cellar and they left it to me. Not to me, but to them. These people coming in the shop and they said, I don't drink. What do I do with it? Well, there were four of us that got together and we bought these old cellars. And it turns out the farmers in eastern Washington and eastern Oregon did rather well. They'd get the crop in. Then they'd go down to San Francisco and buy amazing wines. And so we bought these cellars. And these cellars went back to the turn of the previous century, to around 1900. And they weren't schlock wines. These were classified. Bordeaux's, Great Burgundy's, Rhone's, and some amazing California wines. And I was able to taste many of these wines as mature wines in the 70s and early 80s. And I was able to read the tasting notes of all the great British wine writers. Uh, Hugh, Hugh Johnson, Edmund Penning Roswell on the Bordeaux's, Yaxall on the Burgundies, Masters on the Rhone. And uh, I would read their notes, and then I'm going to visit wineries in Oregon and Washington. And I'm starting to notice what I'd call commonalities. 
as I'm tasting young wines in the wineries produced by, call it the pioneers of Oregon and Washington. Yes, here we're sitting right at 45 degrees north latitude, pretty much where the vineyard is. Uh, that's same latitude as Bordeaux, same latitude as Northern Rhone and Piemonte. There's a reason why 45 degrees north and south on the planet are particularly good bands for growing wine grapes and really good fruit. Uh, the fruit grows well, it ripens and develops the sugars, but it also maintains the natural acidity uh, without going over the top so the sugars don't get too hot. They're balanced, the resulting wines. And that's what brought Dave Lett up here. He saw that this was the potential. We are also blessed. We have a rain season, we got a dry season. Here we are in the dry season. This is typical summer weather. The vines are happy. And right now we're just past the solstice. This is when we want the vines to be growing like crazy. As we get close to harvest, the days are getting shorter. They're still warm, but we have long, cool nights. So the fruit does not metabolize its acidity. That's why apples in these northern climes are really good. Apples further south aren't so good. They don't have the natural acidity. So it's all about balance. And the early people got it. Sometimes the clones were not the right clones to achieve the right balance. Uh, they were all a little bit crazy. And you know what? To be a pioneer, to do something new, you have to be a little bit crazy. I, I'll take a little bit of crazy on my part to start Vintage Northwest and establish some of our Northwest wineries around the country. Initially, I'd try and contact a distributor. I'd figure out who had St. Michelle. I'd try and find the next biggest. And back then, uh, if I called during regular business hours, I'd get screened out. Secretaries would scream me out. I wouldn't get a call back. But then I thought, wait a minute, bosses get in real early. So I started calling the East Coast at 6 a.m. on the East Coast or 6.30. That's 3 or 3.30 here. And there wasn't the secretary to screen me out. I'd get the general manager on the phone. They'd answer. We'd start talking. I'd explain that I'd like to set up a meeting, what I'm doing. And halfway or towards the end of the call, I'd say, where are you calling from? Seattle. What time is it there? Well, it's 3, 3.30 in the morning. Are you nuts? Well, maybe, but I wanted to talk to you and I didn't want to get screened out because I knew I'd get screened out because I tried before. And I'd get the appointment. You know, sometimes you gotta be a little crazy. And this industry has been built on enthusiasm. It's bu been built on its collaboration. Oregon Pinot Camp is just ending, has just ended up, and I'm having dinner with some of the international folks tonight. Uh, and I was involved with Pinot Camp for quite a few years when I had Firesteed. I was on the board. 
as president one year. And it is the greatest collaboration because we help each other out. And uh, if anybody calls and says, Howard, I, what, how do you do X, Y, or Z? I'm an open book. Uh, we, the rising tide does lift all boats. Uh, beware the falling tide. Warren Buffett had it right. Falling tide shows who's skinny dipping. Uh, but the rising tide does lift every boat, and so we help each other out. Um, and I think uh, some of my legacies of Pinot Camp are still there from when I was president. Uh, uh, Mimi Cast, we had a problem that every year at Pinot Camp, a, there was a new czar or czarina of the uh, content of camp. And they'd tear apart the book and put it back together. And it gave a huge amount of power to one person problem. Two, it was potentially the loss of a fair amount of institutional knowledge each time somebody tried to tear it down and put it back together. So Mimi came to me, she was on the board too, and she said, uh, what would you think about us putting together a committee of Pinot Camp people and industry people and uh, call it the Curriculum Committee. And she says, I'm a little concerned about throwing that out to the rest. I said, not a problem. You got my cover. Um, and so I pushed that through. I believe the Curriculum Committee is still going many years later. And uh, it, it, I, I hate in boards. Boards should have turnover, but there needs to be key retention of institutional knowledge. Uh, I've been on one board now for probably 17 years in the industry, and uh, I ain't getting any younger. Uh, it's on the board, it's the board of the Northwest Wine Coalition. Uh, we are the collaboration of the Oregon Wine Board and the Washington Wine Commission. We put in the bids to the U.S. Department of Agriculture for their export programs, primarily the Market Access Program, the ATP Program, but there are also some GBI grants. And uh, we are able, with the collaboration, to get really good funding, which then powers the export programs. Well, uh, this year for, I think, 16th or 17th year, I've lost count. I was elected president. Um, somebody I told that to recently said, oh, did you keep leaving the room? Uh, well, maybe, but I want to start grooming the next group of leadership. Oregon is about to undergo uh, some transition. Tom Donowski uh, is retiring. Washington has just gone through a transition, so I see part of my role is providing continuity and uh, preventing loss of institutional knowledge. But now uh, I think the next task will be starting to record the institutional knowledge so that then future generations can build on what we do. 
Uh, normally, I like to cycle off of boards because uh, sometimes the thinking can be stale. But it also helps with USDA that they see that the same guy's been at the helm uh, and I sit in on audits and stuff like that. I, I end up being the guy whose name is on all the documents and so I've got a fiduciary responsibility for several million dollars of our taxpayer money that then the two industries utilize to promote internationally. So tell me about you mentioned you mentioned the idea for Firesteed and and the idea being you know a certain wine at a certain price that the market is is missing. So once it became clear that was going to be something you were going to do, tell me about um, start starting the path. How do you acquire that many grapes? How do you get distribution? How do you get Firesteed to to be successful that quickly and and to, and to kind of stay there? Okay. Well, there are two halves to the wine business. The first half is growing the grapes, producing the wine. The bigger half, the much bigger half, is the marketing and sales. So I had the method of distribution. So that was the key to the candy store. And so I knew what the market wanted. Fire, where most wineries are what I call production driven. Somebody has bought some land. They planted grapes, they built a winery, grapes are growing up, eventually they harvest, they produce what is in their ground. Firesteed was driven by the market. The market was saying, we want an Oregon Pinot with not too much fruit, easy to drink, modest tannins can retail for $10 back at the time. And if that could be done repeatedly, this is a winner. It's a no-brainer. Um, so I knew that. And even though I presented it to my clients, for their reasons, they didn't want to do it. Um, I was able to do it. And uh, there was bulk wine, but there were grapes too. And uh, agriculture is a cyclical business. There are times when uh, you've got tight supply and times you have oversupply. And so what I've always tried to do is take peaks and valleys out of cyclical things and just have things grow as you predict. And uh, there was this niche you could drive a Mack truck through. It, it was not small isolated. And so we just went for it. And because I did not have to put capital in land, in winery, I could take my initial seed capital into product, into inventory, and then turn the inventory. And it's something I learned from Gary Radin. Uh, Gary did not start with a lot of capital. Uh, he was importing uh, some wines from Friuli, Italy, uh, where his first wife was from. Her family was involved in this wonderful cooperative in Casarsa. Uh, but he also started selling uh, uh, Francia and Yosemite Road. And with the California wines, he was bringing trucks of, of it up. And he'd sell that truck within a week. 
and then he saw another truck. So he'd have four turns of his inventory. And Washington at that time in wholesale was a cash state. There was no credit. So he'd have four inventory turns before he had to pay for truck one. That kept going and building. It's, this is a business and it's figuring out your cash flow and how to work it. You mentioned earlier the, uh, the the virtual winery being being a, being a virtual winery before that was a thing anybody knew. Should have trademarked it. Trademarked it. Tell me about that about getting into selling wine in that way. Um, well, people always want to know the place because uh, wine is very much of the place, and I'd say it's Oregon. Uh, I would not divulge the location until finally I owned the Flynn facility. I'd say it's a virtual winery. You got to trust me. And number one, is the wine good? Yeah, it's really good. Uh, is it consistently good? Yeah, it's consistently good. Okay, next question. <laughs> it, it, being virtual was a new concept, uh, but it was also an alien concept. They say, oh, you're a negociant. No, not really. Uh, because negociants historically deal just in bulk wine. We were dealing in grapes. So the grapes were being grown bespoke for us. Uh, and we were overseeing the wine production. I'd been hanging out uh, in wineries since 1975. And so started Firesteed 92. I'd been sort of a cellar rat. Uh, for years um, while still working wholesale. And so I understand, would understand what's going on in the vineyard and winery, and then try and take away all the risks. But I think part of succeeding in business is risk identification. Try and figure out ahead of time where your danger inflection points are then work to minimize and compartmentalize them. They'll still exist, but try and figure out how you minimize that so that then when problems inevitably arise, you have the time, the energy to deal with the problems. It's part of, a big part of management is problem solving. A manager is not there to get the accolades. Yeah, we love to get the pats on the back and all that, but it's really to identify and solve problems and hopefully identify them before they get really big problem, become really big problems. So uh, historically, when people would say, you know, I have good news and bad news, I wanna hear the bad news. I expect the good news. We as human beings expect good news. It's the bad news that I can deal with. You know, do you plow through the bad news or you try and pivot around the problem? But unless you know what it is, you're stuck. There was a bit of an optical illusion. As I mentioned earlier, there was oak, scrub oak, poison oak, and blackberry right behind me on the hillside. 
And where I'm looking to the east, there's a 2,000 foot long field that you couldn't see. Even the Duches didn't know it was there. Um, I had mentioned this property, it was advertised, um, mentioned it to my winemaker back at Firesteed, and uh, he said, no, no, don't buy it. He had driven by, and he saw the same thing everyone else did. And then one day he calls me up, and it was probably in January one year, in 06, and he said, Howard, yeah, that property at Purcell and Ballard, we got to buy it. I said, Brian? You seem to have changed your tune here. Would you sort of bring me up to speed? And Brian had grown up in California. Uh, his dad had been with Farm Credit there. So he'd grown up around farms. And one day he drove by and he saw a big grass spray rig with those big bulbous tires, huge arms, spraying the field way down. And it folded up its arms and then it disappeared along those trees way up there to the north. And being the smart former farm boy that he was and is, Brian Croft figured there had to be another field. He then went to Google Earth and saw indeed there was this 2,000 foot long south facing slope. And he calls up the agent and says, is that part of it? And he said, yeah, they're pictures. You could not tell from the way the agent had marketed the pictures that they were separate fields. You thought you were just looking at what was there. And so this west-facing hillside, who knew? This 2,000-foot-long south-facing slope. So I said, okay, I got to see it all. I come down. It's a rainy, wet day. We're on the property with the agent. And uh, we go and we see this 2,000-foot-long field. We see the rest of the property. And I believe Brian anyway from the get-go. Uh, and uh, as we're driving off, I know we have to buy it. Now, I'd been on the market for two years without an offer. There is still a little bit of New Yorker left in me. So I couldn't quite give the asking price. And it was a damn good asking price. So I took it down just to skosh. And that was my offer. Um, and I also had one contingency that, and I knew that we were becoming the third family entity to own this property since the original presidential land grant. And, uh, I ended up getting the original abstract of title. And if you've ever seen those, those are special, special documents. We still have it. Um, it had to pass an environmental review. I wanted to make sure no one was dumping chemicals here, uh, and also that Jimmy Hoffa was not living on the property. Okay, sick joke, but it passed the review, um, and uh, 45 days after we closed, it appraised for three times what we paid. For a brief moment, I thought about flipping land, uh, but this has turned into, I think, one of the best vineyards in the Willamette Valley. Uh, I am blessed that I have really good people who work with me long-term. Lisa here at the vineyard, uh, and she's been here at the vineyard ever since I sold Firesteed and slightly before. Um, uh, she was working with me at the winery 
uh, beforehand. And uh, Stephanie, who's my general manager, has been with me close to 30 years. So uh, it's a real privilege having really good people around. Uh, I mentioned Lisa. There's also Diane, who works here. They both drive the tractors. I have no male tractor drivers. The women are patient. They're meticulous. Far less testosterone. They don't try to rush. Fewer accidents. They get the job done. Uh, but you need to use technology. And the newest technology that we're doing is we have on order, I believe, the first two Monarch tractors here in the Willamette Valley. Uh, those are electric and autonomous. And so Lisa and Diana will be able to control them from the pole barn. I also found a company that will convert our diesel tractors to autonomous. This vineyard is all laid out GPS, ramrod straight. Uh, I knew when we planted that farm labor was going to become a choke point. And you still want to utilize the human element where it will give you the highest return on your investment. So we can hand harvest. We have some ladies working the field here. Uh, they're shoot positioning. Uh, most of our leaf pulling is mechanical. Our hedging is mechanical. We can now harvest most of the vineyard mechanically. Uh, the quality of machine harvesting has risen dramatically. Years ago, I bought the first electrostatic sprayer here in the Willamette Valley. They're finicky things, but we use far less chemicals as a result. Electrostatic sprayer uh, gives, let's see, let me get this right. Science people here? The vine is grounded, so the material is given a positive charge. That sounds right. And so it then just goes straight onto the vine, not into the environment. Uh, we love it. It's finicky. It's got to be tended and cleaned, but it's now working 10, 15 years later. Still, great investment. Um, and that was the first one here in the valley. Because they're finicky, not a lot of other people use them, but I love the fact that it uses far less material. It lowers your chemical costs, but it also sprays the material where it needs to go rather than broadcast to the environment. When we go to the Monarchs and eventually convert the diesels to autonomous, uh, it gets windy during the day. The wind dies down at night. You can be spraying at night. And you can set things up so it's the computer is running it. If there's a problem, you get an alert. And so if you're spraying things, then your key people running the, uh, the tractors, basically like a video game off computer at the pole barn, 
they're taking care of mm -hmm. making sure the chemicals are right. Uh, it's doing things efficiently. We will end up, if we ha when we get the uh, monarchs, we'll put in solar arrays. So we'll generate our own electricity. We'll become as self-contained as we can. Uh, to me, that's just fun. But it makes really good business sense. And I love the intersection when you can make those things work the right way. Um, it's not just doing one for the sake of, oh, we got electric tractors. No, it, we are being far more efficient in our critical manpower or woman power uh, so that they are doing the jobs that need to get done. And we are then able to do the tasks when we should be doing them. You know, driving at night sucks. You know, disturbs sleep and all that. But if you can do that, and it's sort of like a video game, all the better. So let's talk about the, the, the future then a little bit. You mentioned that the, the Monarch tractor is on their way. What, what else are you looking ahead to here and, and, in, and in the wine brands? Oh, we will probably uh, figure out how we can better store water. Early on, we were capturing water off of the pole barn. So we have some big tanks that the uh, eaves of the pole barn drain into. Uh, we have some wells on the property. They don't flow a lot. You get a lot better flow across the creek. We do own a little piece of land across the creek and we may end up putting another uh, well in over there. Um, but we'll probably capture more water. We will probably be buying a harvesting machine eventually. Now that the technology has really come up, but that's a huge investment, which I would rather do the Monarchs before. And I want to see how the Monarchs work. And if they work out well for a few years, then eventually our diesels are going to be getting to, towards the end of their optimal life for us, and we'll be able to sell them and, uh, and buy more Monarchs. That would be the plan. Um, you know, farming is farming. So uh, we will be replacing our wooden end posts with metal ones that last longer. Uh, we're starting to see some of the end posts give out. Uh, so we're doing it one by one. It's not an en masse thing. Mm -hmm. It's as needed. Um, there are a few spots on the property that we could plant additionally, but I want that to be driven by the market. Uh, if we have grape customers say, hey, we'd like you to plant a little more of X, Y, or Z, uh, then we could do that for them. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know that I want to uh, do, there's not a lot of extra acreage, but probably another oh, 15, 20 acres that we could do. Uh, I. There's some forested parts that could be nice vineyard, but I want to keep them as forest. Uh, I think they look better that way. We're going to, as long as they're healthy, we're going to keep these big trees. Um, so this one's 400 years old. A bunch of the other trees on the property are 200. Hence, along with these 
Missoula Flood Erratics. I named the property Erratic Oaks um, for the big trees that we left. That was, call it a Lorax moment, leaving the trees. Uh, and I think these are the only Missoula Flood Erratics in an actual vineyard uh, here in the Willamette Valley. There are a few notable erratics, uh, and you can actually see a very famous Willamette Valley erratic in New York City, mm -hmm. in the Museum of Natural History, the uh, Willamette Meteorite, uh, which is sacred to First Nations or uh, Native Americans, but uh, it ended up in New York. And the geologists figure it fell to earth in what is now Canada and then was brought down in the Missoula floods, again embedded in ice. And you look at that erratic, these are small compared to uh, that meteorite. Um, the ice flows had to have been immense. You know, the geologists talk about the ice dam breaking 35 plus times and in the space of a week, more than the combined Great Lakes. And if you get nerdly and look at how deep the Great Lakes are, how much water truly is there, that would empty with a wall of water 100 feet high and moving at 60 miles an hour through the Columbia, well, the Columbia Plateau, the Coulees, Columbia Gorge, towards the ocean, and then backwashing here into the Willamette Valley. It's pretty cool stuff. Um, always been a science nerd. Glad I am. Definitely serves you well. Uh, it's helped me, also the botany has not hurt me uh, in understanding what's going on in the grape growing uh, and what happens in the winery. Mm -hmm. So I understand those processes really well. Understand a plant, and plants sort of have a psychology. Uh, they're trying to make as tasty fruit as possible so that probably a bird or some animal will eat that fruit and take their progeny, the seeds, and deposit it somewhere else. Yeah. So we're just gonna help them along the way, but harvest. What about for the industry? Obviously you've, you've, been, you've been around Oregon wine from, from its nascent eight days. Uh, you've seen a lot of changes. What does the industry look like to you now and, and what happens next? Go back to another term, evolution. It's evolving. Uh, you're seeing generational changes. Uh, you're seeing some people getting out. Uh, you some, see some people trying to figure out what the hell to do. Um, we're seeing significant investment from outside of Oregon. We're seeing investments from Europe, California, uh, and I think that's just the leading edge. Uh, I. You look at what we're doing at the top end of Citation, that 06 that's currently available and the library. That's 
it is Burgundian. We're not trying to be Burgundy. We're trying to be, make the best Oregon wine. But I know darn well that my competition at that level is not necessarily here in Oregon. It's across the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what we, we don't segregate blocks. I sell blocks to wineries, but for our own production, we don't segregate blocks. We do three levels, three quality levels in a Burgundian sense. The center stone is village. Then we do a citation Willamette Valley Pinot, which is all Erratic Oaks fruit. That's our premier crew. Then the age citation is our Grand Cru. And, you know, that's as close to being a Burgundian analogy that I would give, but I have no problem when people throw my wines into blind tastings and uh, they'll do pretty darn well. Uh, they may not win, that's okay. Uh, but if they confound professionals or amateurs that are doing blind tastings, great. Because our job in Oregon, all of us, is to make great wine. And we're finally figuring out how to do that consistently and to do it on scale. Uh, hence, you're seeing big brands. I think we will see more big brands. I think you're going to see more investment from major companies, both small and large. And uh, I think really bright future here in the Willamette Valley. Um, Pinot Noir, I think, will continue to be lead story. I think Chardonnay absolutely is going to go to the next level. But Pinot Gris has always been there, and it was initially the white wine that would grow well. You could put it on the cooler sites, and you could get a crop and sell it while you're waiting for your Pinot to age. Uh, but Pinot Gris is rocking good. It's call it Alsatian good here in the Willamette Valley. We planted uh, just under an acre here on the hillside. Uh, in, along with where we planted a little less than an acre of Gewurz and all our Riesling in an area where everybody else would plant Pinot Noir. And we planted on a west-facing slope. Warm site. Why? I'll tell you why. Um, for years, we tried to make Vendage Tardif, late harvest, in the Alsatian style. I took Brian, my winemaker at Firesteed, to Alsace and Burgundy. And we spent half a day with Jean Hugel back, back many years ago. Jean wrote the Vendage Tardif laws in Alsace because we thought if there's one spot to get that wonderful, rich ripe and noble rot, it would be here. Well, we got the wonderful, rich ripe. We couldn't get Petritus to go. So uh, it's really good Pinot Gris, Gewürztraminer, and Riesling that now some wineries are starting to do vineyard designates from. Uh, but uh, we tried and tried and tried.
and failed, mm -hmm. you know? Gave it about 10 years, um, didn't quite work. I don't think we'll replant those to other things. I think we'll relish the fact that those are really good. Uh, and I spoke earlier that uh, agriculture sort of fluctuates with supply and demand, and right now aromatic whites are in super high demand, Pinot Noir a little less so. So uh, if I were to plant something on speculation, I'd plant aromatic whites. Um, but maybe other people are thinking of that already. And if you're not, you should. Uh, <laughs> Last question for you. Um, Only last? Last. I mean, we could talk all day, I think, but, you know. Uh, what is your biggest accomplishment? What are you proudest of as you look back? My children. Uh, both of them are unencumbered with my wife's and my genetics. We adopted both at birth. Uh, Max was born in Oklahoma and Audrey in Arkansas, but I am most proud of them. I am proud of what my wife has done raising them because I was traveling hellishly, and I think that's one reason why the kids don't necessarily want to be on the branded side of the business. Uh, but they are both amazing human beings uh, and growing into really fine adults. Uh, I'm proud of how this industry has come along uh, and the, the modest role I've played in it. Uh, I, this is the first time I'm really telling these stories uh, for posterity. Uh, I've uh, successfully lived in the background. Um, other people grab limelight. I'm not one that beats my chest. Uh, I would rather the work that I do uh, really be the bragging posts. And uh, I do think what we're doing with aged wine is unique, is special. Um, I love what we do with wines from this property. Uh, they really express the terroir. You can, in a winery, you can taste the erratic oaks mm -hmm. element. And I love how Matt Kramer uh, years ago defined terroir, some awareness. That is about as close as I've heard of a definition of terroir. Mm -hmm. French will talk, of course it's terroir. Well, what does it really mean? Well, it is climate, it is land, it is orientation. It is some awareness. So, Matt, you nailed it. And probably this vineyard will be my best legacy. Uh, it'll pass on either my children or other hands. Um, and uh, it will keep growing. Uh, Lisa will be farming it as long as she wants to. Uh, the deal I have with her is that uh, uh, she's here as long as she wants. and. When she figures out that she doesn't, uh, let me know and help me find the replacement. Uh, I think, and that's the same with all my key employees. I, as I said, I try and give them what they need to get their jobs done and get out of the way and try and support them every which way. It's a pretty good legacy. We'll see. There's still more to do.
It's a fun industry, fun times. Good, excellent. Well, thank you. That's all the questions that I have. Your spider friend is back on your lap there in case you're concerned about that. Yeah, daddy long legs. Any questions I didn't ask that I should have anything that we didn't talk about that we should have talked about? Well, I started thinking about all those other things and I threw them in there and, you know, as I... I got you back to I it. got to the... Well, and I eventually got to the goalposts. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a lot of story to tell. Yeah, and rarely are the runs just straight up and down the field. It, Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Did you have questions? Yeah. Anything you want to ask? You're in the program. <laughs> you know, come on. Now you got an old fart task. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank we you. Really appreciate your time and sharing this space with us and sharing your stories with us. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thanks for finding me. Thank you, Howard. All this time. 700 before me, huh? <laughs> I had to get that dig in. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.